Hello. Hello. Hey, Dan. Hi, John. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm a little groggy. A little groggy? Did you just wake up? You just roll roll out? I did, yeah. yeah. I did do that, just as you're describing. Uh-huh. Um, um, yeah, sort of everything is everything is brand new uh and uh and and confusing yes um uh so whew, you got to bear with me here while i while i shake it off no that's fine i mean have you even had your coffee yet i haven't no oh. um i i haven't had even a sip of coffee i have some here it's sitting right there yeah from that from yesterday no, 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 no. Well, the coffee, yes, is from yesterday or or even the day before, but the uh, but I've microwaved it. Oh no. And so it's no, deliciously no, no, no. warm and sitting there waiting. Nothing delicious about that. Waiting to ca- just to cool down just enough for me to take my first sip of mm. two-day-old coffee. Ugh. I mean, what but, um, what drives yeah. you to do it that way? Is it that you're in in a very much a boomery way? You don't want to waste a single drop of it, or is it that mm. there's a is there a laziness mm. factor which I could respect, or is it what is it all of those things? All of the above? It is all of the above. It's yeah. what I want. What I want is no more attempts on my father's <clears throat> life. But in addition to wanting that, <laughs> what I want is the fastest cup of coffee. With the least amount of fuss and muss. Yeah. And I've had them all, Dan. I've yeah. had your Keurigs. I've had your, uh, I was, we went up and stayed at a little uh, house on Whidbey Island a couple of weekends ago, and they had a DeLonghi mm. home espresso maker. And honestly, that's kind of the best. Yeah, sure. Before the, Jonathan Colton has one of those, and they've had it for They've had it for a decade. They were the first people I knew that had one. Pour the beans in one thing. You pour the water in the other. You push a button. The machine sounds like you're in a uh, in a cafe. It's grinding the beans. It makes you a long shot of espresso. And then it says that it needs to be descaled. And then it <laughs> it needs like constant, constant attention, more than a child. <laughs> but it does produce these wonderful coffees yeah but then on the other hand somebody will give me a free pound of coffee because i i because i did a five minute appearance on their dumb thing and Mm -hmm. i'll grind it or i'll take it home it's already pre-ground how do you like that dan and i'll pour it into the 12 cup coffee maker the mr coffee that's 14 years old and has never been cleaned and uh and then i'll make all 12 cups because you got to make all the bacon Mm mm-hmm and then I'll just let it sit there on the counter for as long as it takes me to drink 12 cups of coffee, which usually is two to three days. And so you just finish it up. You just wrap it up. Or, you know, like the, the Keurig was, the Keurig was fine for a little while. Somebody gave it to me as a gift mm-hmm. and then it needed to be descaled. Yeah. Those things, I, we had a Keurig that just went kaput after about a year and I got another one mm-hmm. that was a different brand. I forget what it is. A Cuisinart or, or KitchenAids. One of those two brands, it's still a Keurig mm-hmm. or it uses okay. the Keurig pods, the but pods. it has lasted, I don't want to jinx it, but it has lasted for years. 
and it's been great. And, um, although I don't drink much coffee myself, it still gets a lot of use. My son now has developed very much over the last six months, I would say a real interest in coffee. And in order for him to just not get completely addicted to it, you know, I tried to get him to have decaf and I'm like, well, this is really expensive. So now have you ever heard, (laughs) you ever heard a dandy blend? No. All right. I'll put this into the show notes for the crazy among uh, you, uh, our audience. No, why is is this, uh, is this going into the show notes because they're going to send us pounds and pounds of dandy blend coffee? No. And it's not coffee. It's, um, it, no, I'm putting it in there because it is, it is a curiosity. Um, very much an oddity that you would find in a, a curiosity shop, but basically dandy blend. Imagine instant coffee, which already, yes, I know not a good thing. Right. But imagine if that instant coffee wasn't actually coffee, but was a blend of barley and chicory and rye and dandelion roots. Oh, yeah, that's the kind of stuff that they used to drink during the war. It it's like ration stuff. It doesn't even yeah. have caffeine in it or anything. But yeah, he's drinking this now because all you have to do is you boil some water and you take a spoonful of it, and knock it into the into the mug, and stir it, and you have something that re- might remind you of coffee. Right. But it is not coffee. Now, when no, I went to I South like Korea, John, I was expecting that they would be all about tea because. When you think of, when, you, when I think, when you think of Asian cultures, you think of tea. That's what I think of anyway. You think of, of tea houses and, you know, the little canaries and little things and everything. And that's not South Korea, I know. But I was expecting them to be like a big tea culture. They're, yes. they're not. They are an instant coffee culture. Oh, yes, I knew that. I knew that, uh, although I've never been there. I'd heard this about the instant coffee. They are all about the instant coffee. And Nescafe. Yeah, they have a brand there called Maxim, M-A-X-I-M, Maxim, <laughs> which they pronounce, I'm going to do my best, Maxim, Maxim. Maxim. And um, it, is an, it is an instant coffee, and what, and they even come because, of course— as, as you may know, many Asians are lactose intolerant. So they, their coffee of choice is this Maxim instant coffee with a crap ton of non-dairy creamer powder mixed into it to the point where you can buy a pre-mixed non-dairy creamer instant coffee packet that you just dump right into your mug and add the hot water and you're good to go. And there are vending machines everywhere for these. This is what people have in their own houses. This is what they mean. And I remember at the time, this was like peak coffee lifestyle for me. This is when I was like grinding my own beans and doing them in a French press or my own espresso machine. And like, I was like into the really pretentious coffee world. And so to go from grinding and in some cases, even roasting my own beans in the oven and grinding them and having a burr grinder. And like, if the beans were like more than three days open, like I could not abide to like, wait a minute, instant coffee with non-dairy creamers, all I can get. It was that to me, that was the culture shock. 
no fun coffee. But by the time that ever, I got back did, home, I loved it, and I had to did, start making it at home. So you make it at home. So, I don't uh, anymore. This was a long time ago, but I weaned myself off of it. In Europe, of course, they, they drink a lot of Nescafe, and really? I got in the habit. You know, you'd get, when you're on tour, you're backstage, and they, they give you a, a, your, your buffet spread. And in uh, European venues treat bands a lot better than American venues. Really? Um, they just treat, they just understand that being a traveling musician is hard and mm -hmm. they value art and they generally, European countries generally have kind of vibrant arts communities, mm -hmm. both at the level of like people banding together in communities, but also like the government supports the arts. It's part of the, uh, it's just part of their collective values mm -hmm. and so even though european moms and dads don't want their kids listening to that jive ass rock and roll any more than anybody else does <laughs> right there are uh the communities understand somehow that like okay well these bands are coming through here we can't just like treat them like shit and so in a lot of european countries when you show up at the venue Certainly, they're going to make every attempt to have some food waiting for you, but they also often have figured out where you're going to stay on your for you. You know, like they've they've either got an apartment that they use for this purpose, or they've they've got a hotel that they regularly um, employ, or you know, they 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 really hold your hand, and not in a not in a paternalistic way. They are paternalistic in the sense that they're, they want you to arrive at the venue at eight o'clock in the morning and stand around all day while they're, while they're unionized guys change light bulbs or whatever it is. You know, they're, they're not very, honestly, they're not very rock and roll. Let's just, that, that's the crazy <laughs> thing. Yeah. They give you such nice food and a nice place to stay, but they don't have a very rock and roll attitude. And maybe the, maybe the, the two things go together. They do believe that rock and roll should be on time, which is something that I don't, I don't understand what that's all about. But what they, so you show up and they've got like, sometimes they have three different kinds of black bread and some hard boiled eggs and lots of wonderful meat and cheese and fresh juice even, but almost never is there coffee other than packets of Nescafe mm. unless they're, unless the venue has its own espresso situation. And, you know, generally that's not up and running when the band arrives. So I get into Nescafe in a serious way. And, you know, they have those single serving little tubes. And because I'm kind of a prepper, and Dan, it's such a bummer these days that preppers have gone from having an understandably already bad reputation as people who are waiting for the big one. And now preppers have been lumped in with all these race war preppers who are a separate kind of prepper. Let's be honest. Although if you're a prepper, you're prepping for something bad to happen. But you know, in my case, in my family's case, cause we're all preppers, let's be honest, the Roderick family with the exclusion of my dad, my dad didn't, wasn't a prepper because my dad believed that A, he would live forever and B, there was no tomorrow. <laughs> but my mom and sister 
are both mega preppers still. So let, let's let's let me understand what you mean by prepper, because I believe there's different levels of of being a prepper, right? Sure, there's sure. so where where do they fit in into this? How, how, what would you categorize this as? Well, I think the the fundamental, you know, the the origin point of any prepper is that you have trained your heart and mind to not expect things to stay the same. And I think there are a lot of people in the world who do not have any contingency plan for if things change. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they can't handle it if things change. Um, if the power goes out, they just can't handle it. You know, they're just like, what the fuck am I supposed to do? And, and then the power comes back on. And when it does come back on, they have no memory of it ever having been off. Or if they do, it's only a fear memory. Like they remember the time that the power went off. Please, Lord, let, let it never happen again. <laughs> but I think most people are like my dad. There is no tomorrow and there is no yesterday. And they're just in the now. And if the power goes off two or three times, the fourth time it happens, it's a big surprise to them again. Um, but more than that, you know, that, that scales up to um, – when there's a when there's a, a a good administration in in power in local government or in national government, they just kind of think like, well, we're over the hump now, and it's everything's going to be fine from now on. And then all of a sudden, there's a bad administration, and they're like, what happened? How is this possible? <laughs> um, whereas somebody like my mom assumes that what we have right now is, you know, and by that I mean the power is on, there's food in the cupboard. The water comes on when you turn it on. Uh, the neighbors are not hostile to you. You know, all those things. My mom just assumes that that is the temporary state. Right. That is, that is the, we're lucky to have this right now. Yeah. Enjoy it while it lasts. She is absolutely a very, she's just a Hobbesian kind of person. Mm. And it's because my mom does not have a tremendous faith in other human beings. You know, she just is somebody who feels that, Human beings are not, not just untrustworthy, but if there's anything you can trust about them, it is that they are that they are mean, <laughs> and um, and so she's never going to allow herself to be put into a position where she is dependent on other people's generosity or, uh, or goodwill or or other people's intelligence. Like she's she is not if she can help it. Beyond, beyond the fact that we all are always dependent on one another and, mm -hmm. you know, you cannot, no, no man or woman is an island entire of themselves, but you can, you can buffer. And my mom just doesn't, is not convinced that anyone else will come to her aid in her time of need. And so is always ready. And it's, it's psychological more than anything. If you... If my mom's car stopped and she got out of the car and looked around and everyone else on earth had been raptured, mm -hmm. she would be fine. <laughs> yeah. And if she got out of her car and everyone else got out of their cars because some electromagnetic pulse had, had stopped all cars and people immediately started rioting and looting grocery stores, my mom would also be fine. Mm -hmm. Like she would be fine. And that's hard 
it's hard to imagine that an 86 year old woman could be suddenly stranded in the middle of a, of a city that was, that had descended instantly into chaos and would be fine, but she would, she would, she would trek overland to her store of, of supplies, you know, it's like she's ready. And my sister has it too. Although my sister is less, um, my sister is much more emotional than my mom. So she has a lot more invested in other people and compassion and it's not that my mom doesn't have compassion for others. She does. She just doesn't have faith that they have compassion for her. I see. Anyway, so they are, they have for years been ready for the big earthquake because we grew up in earthquake country and we've, none of us have lived through a, a well, the big earthquake. We've lived through some seven point earthquake and, and, and dozens of fives and sixes. So we know what it's like. We know that when an earthquake happens, one of the, like the profound experiences, uh, an earthquake, because, um, everything you thought was true is no longer true. The house that you thought was, would protect you from anything is suddenly made of jelly. Mm. The ground, the earth that you think of as the, 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 um, like the immutable is just not your friend anymore. And everything that you think is strong, phone poles and skyscrapers and bridges and all the things, um, they're just all immediately in play. And depending on what the earthquake wants to do, it could all be gone. And that coming up in that, it really, it's a, it's a, it's a companion to the, the Gen X nuclear war experience, kind of walking around all day thinking, well, the nukes could come at any time too. The Russians could come over the horizon. Um, I mean, that, that was very much, you know, we've talked about this a lot and, uh, for people who I think are born after Gen X, they were kind of born into a world where I guess what nuclear war was a remote possibility. But if you think about our parents, they were very much the duck and cover generation. Like they were having drills in school the way that our kids have drills in school now for a Columbine type event. We had sure. drills in school for a nuclear bomb right, uh, or, right. and 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 they had the atom bomb before us where they were very much taught this is what you do when you see the flash you know and we had some of those not a lot but then we had the movie um wasn't it called the day after it was you might not have but but dan because i lived on the pacific coast mm -hmm. both seattle and anchorage were first strike targets mm-hmm and so all through the 1970s and 80s, I mean, we didn't have like, like weekly duck and cover drills, mm -hmm. but we had air raid drills all yeah. the time. And yeah. it was a, a big part of, big part of our awareness. And it was always on the news. And we were, I mean, we, we, it was a cold war, but we were for all intents and purposes, a very tense situation with Russia all the time. And 
Apparently that movie, I put the Wikipedia entry for the movie the day after into, uh, into our show notes, but this movie had such a profound effect on people because for those who haven't seen it, I have no idea if it holds up, but it basically told a story of a, a war um, where there was a full-scale nuclear exchange between the U.S. and Soviet Union. And it's told from the standpoint of, um, I guess they're out in, 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 in Kansas and, uh, and they're basically witnessing because they're outside of a big city, they're alive and they're witnessing what happens, uh, during the nuclear war. And then after the war and like what, you know, at the time they were pretty sure there would be a nuclear winner. I think they still think that. And what the beginnings of that would look like and what would happen to civilization and how people would try to survive. And it was a very, because that felt very, very real. I'm sure you remember this, John. It, it like nuclear war was a very real thing that felt like it could really happen at any time. And yeah. to a kid, our age, you know, our age, single digits, maybe early, early teens or tweens age, you know, I, I don't know. You probably did, but I wasn't following politics closely enough to know if we were like on the verge of a war or not, or how quickly something like that could escalate. In my mind, it was very much a war game scenario where somebody decides to turn a key and push a button and like the, the nukes are flying. And so I was very worried about nuclear war. Um, and I think there were a lot of other people who were, and then when this movie came out, apparently it had such an effect on uh, on on Ronald Reagan and other people that they wrote this and it actually changed their feelings and thoughts on w- nuclear war and on and, and had them change the policies and this is one of the things that led to uh this summit that um that he had with um Soviets uh with Gorbachev I think talking about you know we don't really want this to happen like it it was a very effective show and it still has left like I like when I think about it I still feel like the things I felt at the time of like the dread and the the fear of this yeah well it it, um I think it inspired a generation of um well it was it was it was something I think that set Gen X apart from Boomers, too, in the sense that boomers had had the the experience of kind of growing up in this in the early Cold War, where there was a lot of um, shroom and drong about bomb shelters and duck and cover and they built the interstate highway system, you know, to 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 allow people to escape from cities. Uh, that was a big part of the part of the um, the motivation to build the interstates was that it was how we were going to evacuate our cities in the event of a of the message coming over the wire that the Russians had launched. And there was some point in the early '60s, even late '50s, where the the um, the the military and the government 
the the scales fell from their eyes and they understood the technology well enough to understand that there was no escape. There was no bomb shelters weren't going to work. Civil defense wasn't going to work there. No one was escaping from the cities. There was no survival after the fact. All of the systems that they'd spent billions and billions of dollars to put into place to make nuclear war survivable, it was all just a, um, it was all just a show. It was just a puppet show. Um, and there's, you know, there's lots and lots of documentation of this kind of moment of realization that happened in the, in the higher echelons of government where they were like, wait a minute, like if this goes off, nobody's, there's no, you know, we're talking about like hundreds of millions dead. Yeah. And, um, there's not a, there's not a, a, a family plan for like how you're going to stock up 50 cans of soup and like, and emerge to, to build a new civilization. Like mm-hmm. maybe sure, you know, maybe you get lucky, but probably not. And, and so the, I think the boomers grew up, uh, depending on how old they are, if they were, if they were old enough, you know, they were there for the fifties, um, sort of keep the floor neat beneath your feet kind of, uh, propaganda about, about the Soviets. And then by the sixties, there was this collective feeling of like, no way, man. Um, this is all, this has all been a, um, like a comedy routine. And so a kind of fatalism set in. And I think if you were a boomer, by the time you were in your thirties, you'd been living in this threat of nuclear war for so long that, (laughs) right. That you'd gone through three or four levels of cynicism about it. I don't remember any baby boomers talking to me about the nukes in any voice other than one of total cynicism. But generation X when we were kids, we were given the, this kind of play. We were, we were, we were given this perfunctory story about how the nukes were coming, but it was also drenched in cynicism. And, you know, we're just kids. It it was certainly still like what anybody talked about, but then people forget how tense the international scene was in the, late seventies and throughout the eighties between America and Russia. And through a lot of the sixties, we were fighting detente. uh, I'm sorry. We were fighting, uh, we were fighting Vietnam. There were wars in Africa. We were fighting the Russians all over the world, but there was a kind of detente post Cuban missile crisis that lasted well, you know, like basically until, until Reagan um, but then it came back in with such a vengeance. And I think the, I think it skipped the boomers in a way. They were just like, oh, sure. Uh, but it hit us with this. It just hit us full blast. We would like to say thank you very much to Indeed. Resilience is defined as the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties. It's as crucial in business as it is in health. And if you're in charge of hiring, it should be in every job description, whether you're ready to make your next important hire or you need some rehiring tips. Indeed, they're here to help. Indeed.com, it is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. And unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control 
and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. And plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. And uh, 73% of online job seekers are visiting Indeed each month. So Indeed is going to get you the important hire that you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. So right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. So try out Indeed with that free $75 credit by going to Indeed.com slash Roadwork. This is their best offer available anywhere. So right now, check it out. Indeed.com slash Roadwork. Terms and conditions apply. Offer is valid through December 31st, 2020. Thanks very much to Indeed for making this episode possible. But the thing about an earthquake, Dan, is that it's not... Once you've lived through one, you realize it's not just a legend that the grown-ups are telling you. It's not just something you read about in the newspapers. It's not a potential disaster that will, you know, create firestorms and Jason Robards will will get hmm. uh, scabs as he as he walks around the the fallout zone. An earthquake is very much God reminding you that nothing is. Hmm. solid yeah and i think people in california who lived through a lot of kind of you know 3.4 earthquakes they sort of have a they have a pretty strong sense of like how scary it is but lately at least you know you have a three-point earthquake in california and twitter will light up and everybody's like that was an earthquake oh i hit under the you know, I hit under the kitchen sink or whatever. And, and it's a, I think like a lot of things in California, the, the fact that it's a potential real disaster, mm-hmm. it dawns on people even less because it happens as a small scale thing for so long. Fires, landslides, earthquakes, like they've happened in California my whole life, but always these kind of manageable disasters like, oh, it, there was a bunch of wildfires and we put them out or a bunch of, you know, it rained a lot and there were a bunch of landslides or, oh, we had really bad drought, but we figured it out. Um, but in Alaska and to, and to a lesser extent, Seattle, but to a greater extent than in California, like if you, if you are in a 7.4 earthquake, mm-hmm you do not any longer feel like um, uh, that there's any question that a, the big one is coming and B when it does, there is uh, like, you've got, (laughs) you've got a few seconds to figure it out. And my, my uncle and a lot of my dad's friends, they lived through the, through the big one in Alaska, which was, you know, a nine point two or something oh like gosh. that. But it, when but was it that? Shook, 1964. Oh, man. It shook for five straight minutes. Wow. And it destroyed the, it destroyed the state. It created tidal waves and, um, and it, it wrecked Anchorage, absolutely wrecked it. But, but other towns in Alaska were just 
wiped off the map. And the only reason that it wasn't a greater disaster was that in 1964, there weren't that many people in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Um, it was Anchorage was a kind of a small little town. And most of the towns that were wiped off the face of the map were, were just villages. If it happened today, yeah. that same earthquake in Alaska would be, you know, mass casualties. Ugh. And the thing is that earthquake could happen in Seattle. It could happen in San Francisco. It could happen in LA. If there were, if there was a nine point earthquake in LA there, it would be, it's unfathomable, Yeah, but it's also very fathomable. It could happen at any time. So, so the kind of preppers that we are, are just the kind of preppers that every time I buy a can of soup, I buy one for Elijah. <laughs> right? Yes. Like every, every time I open a package of new band-aids, I put half of the band-aids in the medicine cabinet and I take the other half of the band-aids and I put them somewhere else. Because I might not be able to get to the medicine cabinet. Right. Like I have bags that have band-aids and flashlights and knives. And they're not, it's not everyday carry. Like I, I, I try to, basically I don't feel that, um, I've never gotten into like strong everyday carry because I don't think it's very fashionable or I'm sorry, I don't think it's very stylish and I, and I admire people who have made the transition either coming from a place of having no style to having developed an everyday carry style and having that be their style because I like it when people have style. Mm -hmm. And so if everyday carry is your style, I'm into it. Because it is a style. <clears throat> and I also admire people who came from having some kind of style and migrating into having an everyday carry aspect to that style where they're like, yeah, I wear, I wear clothes that I think about. And also I carry a bandolier and, um, and a short machete. I'm like, great. You know, like that's a style too. But my style and everyday carry do not, there isn't a place really where they connect. Like I am not going to wear a fanny pack. I have over the years worn some things on my belt in, um, you know, in holster fashion in this, in that I would wear a leather man and I would wear a little mini mag light. But that was when I was touring all the time and I needed those things for work, but I'm not going to strap on a belt, like a utility belt on my way out the door in my, uh, with my red boat shoes and my madras shirt, you know, like everyday carry just does not comport. And I know that the people that are fundamentalist preppers are going to roll their eyes and fall on the floor and grab their sides at the prospect that I would jeopardize my life and family by not carrying a fishing wire and a signal mirror Mm -hmm. on my person at all times, just because it it doesn't go with my Bermuda shorts. But I'm telling you, life is weird. (laughs) And for me, style is very important. And there's a part of me that wishes that I could just be full on prepper style with like 
the sides of my head shaved and a top knot and just wearing black Carhartts and combat boots and have utility shit all over me. And like, if somebody said, how am I ever going to get this hex nut unscrewed? I could just reach back and, and have a hex nut on hand. My friend, Jesse Uyeda, who is a, who's like one of, she's a maker who has like videos on YouTube of her constructing things. Mm -hmm. And she's, she lives in Palm Springs or, or Palm desert, I guess, or not Palm desert lives up high Joshua tree. Uh, and she's like fixing an old house up there. And she is somebody who has full on just her style is sort of, it overlaps with the prepper style. She's just black head to toe, um, utility belt with knives and screwdrivers and nunchucks and, you know, climbing rope or whatever. Like if you're ever in her company and you're walking along and like, Oh gee, I wish that I could pry up this USGS survey plaque and, you know, and cut it with a MIG welder and turn it into a belt buckle. And she's just, you, you turn around and she's already doing it. And you're like, wow, I wish I had all those tools and all that. Like, like, uh, I don't know, uh, preparedness. And that's the, that's the key of, of being a prepper preparedness. I don't, I'm not into that, but mm -hmm. I am ready, Dan, mm -hmm. for the big one. And nowadays the big one, when you, when people talk about it, they're talking about the civil war that we, that keeps coming up yeah. on this program and on, in every program. And a lot of the preppers are getting a bad rap because there is a lot of overlap. A lot of the, a lot of the Gen X people that were ready for the nukes and were ready for the earthquakes and were ready for the system to break down and recognize the fragility of civilization. They also cannot help but feel like these are fragile and perilous times. Mm-hmm. And I really think every religion has some kind of apocalyptic element to it. Um, and it's a natural human impulse to feel like these are the end times. If you go back and read. Everyone always thinks it's the end times in there. It's always the end times. It's always the end times. So everybody's always just, na just naturally in their hearts feel like, oh, it can't get any worse. But also for my life to have any significance, this has to be the, I have to live through the end somehow. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, that's the consensus, I think. But, but there are all these preppers in the world that are coming at it from the other side, which is the side of, um, the kind of, you know, the fundamental belief that, uh, that the tree of Liberty is watered with the blood of Patriots that the, the concept that, I mean, it's the, it's the whole, um, it's, it's all the, the, I, I'm hesitating to say brainwashing because that's too pejorative, but the, the logical 
underpinning of the NRA version of the current world, which is that the only thing that protects Americans from tyranny is the widely distributed uh, availability of firearms to keep um, tyrannous wrecks from uh, jackbooting them into prison camps. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's a sex fantasy, basically. It's a, like a, a fantasy of virility because it's not rooted in anything. I mean, there's not, there's no example in history where a well-armed militia was successful in, um, holding back tyranny when tyranny was on its way. There's a thousand more examples of a well-armed militia just being co-opted into the service of tyranny, which I think is what's happening now. Um, but if everyone in, if everyone in America was issued a single firearm, like in Switzerland or in, in Israel, where it was like, you need a firearm in your home. It comes from the government. Here it is. Here's the serial number. Please sign here. Uh, that might be one thing, but the, but the idea that, um, that there are people in the country who live in far flung places who have incredible arsenals in their home and they believe in their hearts that they are there to protect us, or at least that they are now are, are, are equipped to protect themselves. Of course, it just fills your mind with images of who are, who are you there to protect against and if there aren't russians that are marching that are coming down red dawn style you have to invent people that you're there to defend against and right. it's got to be i think most of those second amendment people throughout the 90s and 2000s were def were ready to defend against the government they thought it was going to be the feds who were coming to take their oatmeal and impose some kind of Obama legislation on them. Make, make them have uh, gender neutral bathrooms is what they were afraid of. Right. And now it's somehow the script has flipped in just four straight years. And now they're defending against these supposed Antifa armies that are coming to their small Kansas towns to, I think again, impose gender neutral bathrooms that's the ultimate fear <laughs> right that's that's what everyone's really afraid of today yeah it, it it's just it used to be that the government was going to do it and now it's this vast left-wing conspiracy of black masked portland graffiti artists who are gonna who somehow really care whether your west west texas town has um gender neutral bathrooms or not but anyway the people coming from that side who believe that what they're there to do is not survive the disaster, but to protect, to, um, to man the barricades, you know, to build a citadel and fight off the enemy. Um, they're also, they also think of themselves as preppers, but like, my family and my version of prepperdom isn't fighting anybody or fighting off anybody. Like when the big one comes, when the earthquake comes and the volcano erupts 
and society breaks down and all the grasshoppers who didn't prepare for winter <laughs> and who are suddenly like, um, you know, out on the roads in bedraggled hordes marching up the I five corridor, uh, scrounging for nuts or whatever. Like I'm not as worried about them. I do not see myself sitting in a, in a foxhole, um, with my family huddled at my feet, unloading rounds into these Californians who didn't have the foresight to, to buy enough toilet paper to protect my way of life. Like that's not, that's not what I'm preparing for, right? Like the first thing I'm preparing for is the immediate six hours after the earthquake destroys everything. Like how do we get inside and get a fire lit and, um, you know, what they say, I think is that if, if you think about the people of Poland in 1938 and you think about, there surely were people in Poland in 1938 who had a bunch of guns in the basement and who thought, well, whatever happens between the Nazis and the, and the Soviets, I'm protected because I got all these guns and they're not going to fuck with me. I'll make sure of it. You know, my wife and daughter are safe. Right. Like that guy didn't survive the war and either did his wife and daughter. Uh, there's no, there's no chance he survived the war because if he shot the first five Wehrmacht guys that came over the hill, the next 50 Wehrmacht guys shoved that gun up his ass. And if he was on the other side and, and, and shot the first red army guys that came over, they shoved it up his ass. And then the Wehrmacht came and pissed on his grave. You know, there's not a way if things really go, um, where a guy with five guns protects his family and, and somehow like the wave of disaster parts, the sea of disaster parts and go, just goes around him and his like hardened basement is, uh, is like a beacon of light until order is restored. I just don't see it. But that world and, and my world of people that are, because I think those guys separate their band-aids out too. They mm -hmm. just separate their band-aids into, uh, with a different fundamental understanding of like what the, or I'm sorry, a different, a different fantasy about what the plan is. Um, and I think at my, at my, at my wildest fantasy, I figure out a way to survive off the land, but it's not a, it's not a, like, um, I had fishing line. I, I, I had the foresight to carry fishing line with me to the office every day. And so now the disaster came in a big wave and now I'm up in the mountains outside of Missoula and I'm just pulling fresh trout out of the water. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think you're identifying if I'm hearing you right, you're kind of identifying two different thoughts when it comes to prepping. There's the kind of person 
maybe like your friend, the prepper who's sort of living the life right now. And the fact that they go into an office every day with the fishing, you know, twine in their pocket, they're going to the office because they know all of this, like your mom, this is all temporary right now. And they're ready for whenever that thing happens. Well, and and the thing about, the thing about Jesse and, and people, uh, that carry that stuff as part of their daily carry, she's not waiting for the disaster. She wants the tool to solve the problem immediately. She wants, she wants to solve today's problem. And right. Okay. Yes. Yes. You know, she's, she's more of a prepper for day-to-day stuff. Right. She's as a opposed for the to the problem that you're going to have this afternoon when right, the okay, fuse yeah. box on your car burns out. Right. That's and what she's proud. See, for me, and, and it's so funny that you brought this up today because I was just talking to a friend how, you know, I have what I would describe as a, relatively speaking to, to people who are really in the survivalist, whether we want to call it, because to me, well, okay, let me back up a sec. I feel like they're survivalists and preppers. And I, if to use my terms, I would say Jesse is more of a survivalist than a prepper. A prepper to me, and these are just my own personal definitions, is someone who says, I need to be prepared for when something goes wrong, whether that's the power grid's off for two weeks, the hurricane takes, you know, n- knocks out power here and we have no water or or whatever, or a nuclear war or a zombie apocalypse or whatever the meteor strike or EMP or whatever the concern is that basically reverts us for a period of time to the stone ages. And they want to be ready to survive that. And the big part of surviving that is having the stuff you need stored in your basement to get through it and the know-how to build or make the things that you might need to make while you're waiting for the world to come back or how to defend yourself during that period of time. So these are the people who have, and maybe you're in this category who have the basement with stocked shelves. They're separating the band-aids. They know how to do a basic field dressing and how to make a splint. They know how to, you know, take a, take a six inch knife and baton to make firewood and they know how to make feather wood and they know how to use, you know, to make the, the wet pieces of wood and like, like they're ready to do this kind of thing. Maybe they've got some tanks so that they can, uh, you know, full of propane so they can cook, or maybe they're just going to rely on their fires that they're going to make to cook. But the point is we're going to be okay for these three weeks before order is restored. And that's a prepper to me. A survivalist is the kind of person who says, you know, I went out into the woods and spent two weeks there. And the only thing I brought with me was this knife, this hatchet, and this uh, half empty plastic bottle of water and uh, two weeks NBD and, uh, you know, I know what to do or, or simply, you know, if the world were to fall apart, that's fine. It's not really going to affect me that much. I won't have Netflix, but I can live without that. I'll, you know, I'll play guitar and sing out by the fire because I'm lighting a fire anyway, every night outside, or I go camping every weekend or whatever. Those, those are the survivalist people. Those are the people who probably have, you know, some kind of knife on their belt at all times. Um, the people who are, are ready to kind of do anything. It sounds like your friend. And to me, that's more the survivalist mentality. It's not that they're doing it because they anticipate a, a bad thing happening, although maybe they do. 
but it seems like they're more just engaged in that mentality of, I want full independence. I don't want to rely on a power grid to cook my dinner. If I have it, I'll use it, of course. But if it were to go away, I'm fine. Whereas most preppers are not thinking that way. Most preppers are not like, oh, power out, NBD, let's start a fire out back. That's, they're still going to be like pissed off that the power's out, but they're like, well, at least we don't have to, you know, dig into the rations. Well, yeah, like anything in America, they're uh, at some level and there's a prepper community that's just an excuse to throw money at stuff. You know, the guy across the street here um, has a, a generator that is wired into his house. Oh, and nice. When the power goes off, the generator kicks on and everyone else in the neighborhood is, <clears throat> you see the fires start in the chimneys, mm-hmm. you see the candles show up in the living rooms. But his house is like, he's got all, he turns all his lights on and his stereo on and he uses the microwave just to, just to show everybody that like he was ready and we weren't. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but at a, at another level at the, at the level my mom thinks about like, yeah, that guy has just, he's just burning precious gasoline in order to keep his dumbass TV on for another two days and then he's out of gas but the extent of his preparation was to to uh, it, it still relied on gasoline and it still relied on his his um you know on 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 pushing back the darkness for one more for one more day right and my my mom's thing is like don't rely on candles you know, her, she doesn't light a candle when the power goes off. Why waste a candle? Uh, just, so it's, you'll just read when it's bright out again. <laughs> yeah. It's just entirely different sense of, uh, of like scale and economy. But I think that, you know, I don't even think that Jesse is thinking about the apocalypse. Uh, there are, there are a lot of the people. And I think in the everyday com- care or everyday carry world, who just want to solve problems now, you know, they're just problem solvers. And at, at a, at a basic level, it it's down to when something breaks, are you able to fix it with a piece of rolled up cardboard and, a, and you know, like some wire that you find, mm-hmm. or if it breaks, do you throw it away? Or if it breaks, do you panic? And, you know, the number of times that you, that you use the wrong tool to fix a thing is kind of, there's gotta be a sliding scale on, um, in, in some sort of prepper universe of like, if you're somebody that, that practices the religion of there's a right tool and, and so you're you know, your version of preparedness is to have the correct tool for every problem. That's one mentality. And then the other mentality, or the, there's a competing mentality, which is with this leather man, I could build a tower. Mm-hmm. I have the wrong tool, but I have a sense of how to take this wrong tool and make it, make it function across all platforms or at least, you know, and that, and you know, a lot of that is knowledge based too. Like if my, if my Chevy Suburban broke down, I could probably get it running and keep it running even even like past the point where 
where we were kind of having to make parts. If, um, you know, if my daughter's mother's, if my partner's, if my sister wife's Audi A5 broke down, I wouldn't even know where the motor was, frankly. It's under so many layers of, of, of bleep loop. <laughs> I wouldn't understand it, right? And it's mm-hmm. part of the reason that I have an old truck. However, I mean, I think right now, just just in the same way that Hawaiian shirts are getting a bad rap. Mm-hmm. And now Fred Perry. And Fred Perry. I think the old, the kind of ancient desire to be ready is also getting kind of corrupted by politics in that being ready now feels political in a, and I guess it always felt a little political, but now it feels partisan. It feels like you're ready and there's an ellipses there because what are you ready for exactly? And there's so many people in America who have, who are ready and you can just taste their excitement. Like they're ready for it, for, uh, for a civil war. They're ready for it to spark off. They're excited. And partly it's because they've been in their minds emotionally preparing for it for so long. And they have all this gear stacked in the, uh, in their basement and they're ready to prove themselves. They're ready to, they're ready to demonstrate their virility. They're ready to back up their convictions with action. And all of those are, all of that is like feeding into this energy that's, that's in the air right now. That's an energy that could only exist in a world where most of the people had never been in a fist fight or in a fight of any kind. Like most of the gun preppers and whatnot, you know, most of the, um, most of the people across the entire spectrum that are really, really squaring up for a fight are doing it as part of that ancient cycle of like, there has to be a war every two dozen years or every 50 years or, or every five years, um, small war, big war. Sports contests will will sate that thirst for a while, but eventually people forget. They forget how bad it is, and they need to fight. And it feels like it feels like a perfect storm is happening. And as somebody that's got like band aids in three or four different locations and cigarettes over the doors. I, I want to be ready. I still am pretty much preparing for an earthquake Mm -hmm. because I recognize that there is no ready. There is no state of civil war for which I can be prepared by having a bag of tools, right? Like a gun isn't going to help. It's not going to help me. It's not going to help my family. 20 guns isn't 
the uh, 20 guns won't help. No amount of guns are going to help. And nor, nor fishing line either. And frankly, no, no hardened safe room. You know, the only thing that I could contribute or can contribute to protecting my family or, or helping is my voice. And I don't, I, I can't find, um, I'm, you know, I feel like my voice is holstered too, in a way, mm-hmm. um, because there isn't a, there's such a cacophony now of voices that there's not a place for, there's not a place where people of good sense are talking. So basically I, <clears throat> every time I buy a soup, I buy an extra one for Elijah and then I buy an extra one for Elijah's friend. 